Lieutenant in the Naval Reserves, Hannah Phelps is a 2021 Chairman Circle, John Monash Scholar and Meteorologist with the Royal Australian Navy. Hannah graduated from the University of New South Wales, ADFA, with a Bachelor of Science, Honours and the University Medal in Mathematics and Statistics. Since then, she has served on board HMAS Childers and Success as a Maritime Wartime Officer and been deployed to Antarctica, providing forecasting support for the Australian Antarctic Division. And today, she joins us from Vancouver, Canada. Hannah, welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. It's really great to be here. So what brought you to Vancouver? After I spent some time in Antarctica and decided that I, I wanted to pursue a PhD um, in a topic that was related to Antarctic meteorology and um, forecasting uh, how how the continent's going to behave over the next uh, 100 or so years under climate change, um, I was looking for programs all over the world that would give me that sort of experience to um, do some field work and also be at a, a top university uh, so I, I looked in Canada and came across UBC and there's a great glaciology program there. That's how I ended up here. How long have you been in Canada for now? I've just been here six months now. So I started the PhD program in September last year. Okay. And tell us about UBC. UBC is great. It's got a really active um, environmental department. I'm in the Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences School and they do lots of great lobbying about climate change and they're very proactive in the in their community. UBC is also a very sustainable university. It's, it's rated in the top two or three in the world in terms of implementing all these things that we learn about and talk about. So, you know, from the way they do their recycling to the way they implement travel for going to conferences and things like that, uh, sustainability is a real priority for them. And yeah, the department is just full of really wonderful people who are working on problems to do with climate and uh, working out how we can best approach them into the future. I don't think I've spoken to a scholar who's been to UBC before. So tell us about um, tell us about the university and campus life and what it's like to to study there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't think there are very many scholars in in Canada at all. Uh, I know of one or two, but um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people get attracted to the states and to the UK, which is very understandable. But Canada's got just as many great universities, I think, and the programs here are, are really excellent. So um, I would highly recommend it to anyone who's who's looking around for different programs. The campus is beautiful. It's really large, um, very green. We're right out on the water and the facilities are excellent too. It's, it's a really great place to be studying. The, the graduate community in my school, in the Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Science School, is about, uh, I think it's close to 200 strong students. So um it's really active. There's lots of people who are there to socialise with and discuss ideas with, which is great. Uh, and it's also a very active outdoors community in Vancouver and at UBC generally too. Um, everyone's into climbing and skiing and hiking and uh, we're in probably one of the best parts of the world to do that. So I feel very fortunate to be here. Yeah. What is your PhD um, looking into? Yeah. So my PhD, the title is um, Atmospheric Science. Uh, my focus is on modelling glaciers. So uh, I have a, a mathematics background, so I'm coming at, it, at this from a from a mathematical perspective. Um, so implementing mathematical models um, to see how these glaciers are going to behave over 
the next 100 or so years. And to do that, we're pulling a lot of data from global climate models, which is where my sort of forecasting and meteorology experience comes in handy. Um, we're pulling a lot of data from them to see what the climate is going to do and then from that work out what the glacier response is going to be. And what has your research told you so far? Um, I haven't done an awful lot of my own research just yet, but I have done a lot of reading of other people's research. And the group here mostly works on mountain glaciers, which are um, glaciers not connected with the ocean. Uh, and it, it forecasts between uh, around 70% loss in the next 100 years for mountain glaciers globally. Um, th those numbers are fairly variable. There's just so many things to take into account Um which is where my work is trying to come and improve some of these estimates. But, but yeah, the loss of glaciers over the next 100 years is going to be significant. And a, a question from a layman or a punter like myself, once a glacier is lost, is that it? A fresh glacier is growing or is it the, the, the climate is such that that will never happen again? Um, under the warming climate that we see at the moment, there aren't going to be any fresh or new glaciers forming. There are a few glaciers that are still getting bigger because they're in very you know, specific climates um, where there is more snow than melt each year, but they're an absolute they're an absolute minority, like they're less than 1%. They're an outlier. Yeah, generally the trend we see for all glaciers is that they're declining in, at some rate. And what is what is the science telling you about why that is happening? Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty clear that it's linked to a warming climate. It's it's not really a surprise that as temperatures increase, ice is going to melt and these glaciers are going to disappear more quickly. So, I mean, the the underlying cause behind it is is not really groundbreaking, but working out how it happens and the rate it happens at is important work for us to plan how we're going to respond to these changes. One thing that happens in Canada that they're really interested in is um, working out how the river flow that comes off a glacier will be affected because a lot of these communities in Canada that are fairly remote, they're almost entirely reliant on meltwater during the summer from these glaciers. And as these glaciers start to disappear, then these communities' water supply is going to be really affected. Um, so that's, that's one way that we need to be really conscious about uh, how we plan for these events. And has the, has the rate of glacier melt been increasing in recent times? Uh, definitely over the last, say, 50 or so years, yes. Um, rates are very dependent on where you are in the world. So some areas have already hit, hit their peak melting and their glaciers are on the total tail end. Other other places that's going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years or so. So I know you've, you're obviously um, up north. I know you've spent some time uh, in Antarctica to the south. What's it like in Antarctica and, and what can you tell us about the glaciers in Antarctica? So my, my time in Antarctica was an amazing experience. Um, I think the first thing that impressed me about the continent was just its absolute vastness and then also its absolute emptiness. It's, it's one of those places that really has not been touched that significantly and um, still very much exists. When did you go down there? Uh, I went down over the summer of 2019-2020, so I was there over Christmas and New Year period for um, four months. Is it impossible to go in winter? 
It's just you just can't get there? It's impossible. Well, it's very, very difficult to get in and out. People stay down there over winter. So there's a there's a permanent sort of workforce that's left behind um, every time everyone <laughs> yeah, <bye. laughs> leaves for the summer. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Good luck. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which, I, yeah, would be an amazing experience, but also a very tough job, I think. They're they're very remote um, and very isolated, but they do, yeah, they do a great job of keeping everything running and maintained until the next summer season comes around and work can start up again. So you you went to Antarctica. I mean, what is it like living there and working there and what, what sort of work were you actually doing? Yeah, so I was down there um, as a, the Navy sent me down there as a forecaster to work alongside the Bureau of Meteorology forecasters. And we worked in conjunction with the Australian Antarctic Division. So the reason they have forecasters down there is largely driven by the aviation activities. So there's uh, flights coming in um, at the start and at the end of summer from Hobart. And then there's also flights moving around the continent, much smaller flights between bases. Um, so we're down there to work with the pilots and tell them the sorts of conditions they can expect um, and talk about weather windows and when they can fly and when it's, you know, might the, the conditions aren't ideal. So that that's sort of our main priority for being there. And then we also forecast for station activities. So for, you know, scientists going out into the field or for certain work that has to be done around the base. And we also forecast for the boats coming down to the continent as well. So there's, there's a variety of roles that I did down there. Um, which was really interesting work, actually, because it's it's quite different to forecasting in Australia. How is it different? Yeah, so Australia has lots of different weather observation stations, um, lots of uh, ways to collect data to tell us whether or not our forecasts are accurate, whether or not they need to be changed. And that's, you know, almost to the minute, you know, there's there's not much of a delay on information in Australia, maybe sort of 10 to 15 minutes at the most. In Antarctica, there was a handful of weather observation stations all over the continent, which is, you know, bigger than Australia. And so you're dealing with a real sparsity of information. You don't have great satellite coverage, which is something we really rely on in forecasting. I bet, Uh, yes. Yes, so we used to get like maybe, you know, three or four black and white images a day from the satellite if we were lucky. So, you know, and in Australia, we normally have a 10-minute, high definition color resolution, you know, photo telling us what's going on. So uh, that was a real point of difference. I bet. It makes your job harder. It really does. It really does. You were putting a lot more, you you were having a lot more impact on the forecast than, than back home a lot of the time because you're really relying on these, these weather models. Whereas d- down south, the weather models weren't, we knew weren't performing as well. So we had to put a lot of our own input in. But then, yeah, life on the station was also really fun and really rewarding. Got to meet a lot of very interesting people down there. How many people normally, well, when you were there, how many people were down there? So I was at Casey Station, which is Australia's largest Antarctic station. And I think at the peak, there might have been just over 100 people there. It normally sat somewhere around 80 people. Um, So it was a fairly transient population over the summer as people came and went. How do you move move around down there? How do you like get around? (laughs) How do you get around? Great question. Um, I had no idea until I went down there. Uh, They have these things called hags or haglunds, which have like tracked wheels that can go over snow and ice much more easily. Also, they had to go through water at times because you get this 
like a very serious melt happening during the summer. Yes, so, I bet. Um, yeah, it was it was really interesting to see them. And then, I mean, they do just drive, you know, there are some utes down there and some other tractors and um, heavy machinery. You can just sort of get around here. Yeah, they end up grooming in roads but to certain areas that are sort of heavily trafficked and then you just stick to the road because you know it's safe and, um, yeah, you can drive on that. But, yeah, it's not not always easy for sure. What about the – did you get a chance to see any of the, uh, the wildlife? Yes, had some amazing wildlife experiences actually. Uh, so lots of penguins, they kind of just wander yes, around the station okay. at, at yeah. free will, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so saw a lot of them, which was really great. There was also um, one of their – I think they call them nests on one of the islands where they kind of come to uh, to have babies and you know uh, do their thing over the summer. Uh, so we went out and visited one of them, and there, I mean, there would have been you know thousands of penguins on these tiny little rocky outcrops, and the smell was really quite incredible. <laughs> <laughs> unique, very unique, um, but yeah, very cool to see. Uh, also, saw lots of seals. So I saw leopard seals, uh, Weddell seals, and the leopard seals. I've seen them in the documentaries. They look scary. Yes. Um, I think there's only been one recorded a death from a from a leopard seal. So, I mean, you know, on the scale of things, they're probably not that bad. <laughs> did you jump in the water at any stage? Did you have a swim or is it too cold? Yeah, we did. We did just one swim on Australia Day. Uh, so, we all went down and... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they cleared the area for seals and <laughs> uh, we all jumped in the water and uh, got out very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that was quite an experience too. So if if you put your um, scientific hat back on for a moment, what what is the significance of Antarctica to understanding climate change and how it might be affecting the planet? Yeah, so... I mean, when we're considering climate change, we have to think about the global system as a whole. Um, you can't just look at one continent or, you know, one town and say, you know, this is what we see happening over the next 100 years. You, you have to be thinking about the entire Earth. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of feedback systems between what's happening at the poles and, you know, how that affects weather at the equator and vice versa. So, you know, the, you, you can't look at anything in isolation. Um, and given how large Antarctica is and how much of a driver it is for all, all the weather that's happening down in the south and all these global circulations that are set up and impacting different areas, uh, understanding how it works and what the mechanics are behind Antarctica is, is critical to accurately forecasting um, climate change and how that happens over the next 100 or so years. And are you seeing similarities between your observations in Antarctica and your your field work uh, up in Canada? Um, I haven't been out in the field yet, so I'll be going out over this next next summer season. So in June, I'll be camping out on a glacier for a couple of weeks and, um, yeah, doing my work up there. Your game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very excited about it, but <laughs> ask me when I get back, maybe. <laughs> but there are no polar bears, Hannah. Yeah, they do actually set up a bear fence, I've been told. So not for the polar bears, but for the grizzlies. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Well, dear, oh yeah, dear. yeah, I'm sure it will be fine. I think the type of work that you, or the, the way you do work in a cold environment down in Antarctica or up um, on the glaciers here will be sort of generally similar, but yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you. Yes. So 
you're studying in the field of glaciology and everything that goes with that. What was it that made you interested in that in the first place? So, I mean, it was largely driven by my time down in Antarctica. I always, I always knew I, I wanted to do a PhD. Uh, and then from, from there, it was kind of just working out what's, what's a topic that I'm interested in and passionate about. Interested in to keep you going. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's really critical when you know you've got at least sort of four years of study ahead of you full time on one topic. You, you need to have some passion there for it. <laughs> There's got to be some enjoyment. Absolutely. Uh, And yeah, I'd always been very interested in climate change and understanding those processes. I had a background in meteorology, which was really helpful. And then I I saw and experienced what was happening down in Antarctica and the kind of work that goes on there. And I saw how important it was. And that led me into glaciology. And so what's the Navy connection? Because you're serving in the Australian Navy. I'd like to hear more about how all of that began. Yeah, absolutely. So I joined the Navy when I was 17, um, basically straight out of high school, uh, and I spent 12 years in the permanent Navy force. So yeah, I ended up as a lieutenant. Um, I joined as a maritime warfare officer, uh, and the main role in that job is navigation and and driving ships around. So I, I did end up spending a few years at sea. Um, working on the bridge of these ships and, you know, keeping keeping them on track and keeping them safe uh, <laughs> in their travels. <laughs> Turn left here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sort of. <laughs> so, yeah, I did that for the sort of first probably six or seven years in the Navy. I also did my undergraduate degree through them. So I, I went to ADFA and studied there. And where did that take you? All around the world, no doubt. Yeah, I was I was very lucky. I have been through Southeast Asia fairly frequently. Um, I got over to the Solomon Islands in New Zealand, uh, got up to India once um, and sort of all around Australia as well on ships. So yeah, have had some really phenomenal experiences being at sea and working in that environment definitely challenging at times as well but um yeah a really incredible experience hope you didn't get seasick did you (laughs) i think everyone gets seasick at some point it just is how rough the ocean is yeah i mean there's there's a few outliers who tell you it never happens to them well what's the cure because i've been out a few times and you start to get the wobbles but i'm i'm generally okay but i've had friends go down and it's it is not a good look it's just awful. Oh, it's it's a really horrible experience. Um, <laughs> I think I think the trick is taking seasickness tablets and taking them early. As soon as you start feeling sick, it's too late. But then also being somewhere where you can see the horizon and um, get some fresh air is also. They say that. Look at the horizon. I'm not sure it works though. Yeah, people have different strategies. That that worked for me most of the time. So. <laughs> And so if, if I can ask about the scholarship, because there are a lot of scholarships out there, what made you focus on the John Monash scholarship and, and talk through, if you could, that the, the process of applying and, and getting through and then finally being selected? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, so I was looking for, for funding and ways to do that. Uh, so I looked for scholarships available um, to Australians. What's out there? Yep. There are lots, but the John Monash scholarship really appealed to me. Thanks to all of the other things it promotes, like leadership and community and giving back and bringing these skills home to Australia too, I think that's really important. And then dealing with the foundation through the application process was actually just so lovely. They're so helpful. Um 
they're such a supportive organization and, and such a lovely group of people uh, that as soon as I started uh, the application process, I, I knew I was onto a good thing, I think. Um, the application process was, uh, yeah, d- definitely a little stressful at times um, and made you really reflect on your motivations for doing these things and, to, you know, consider where you want your career to go after these, um, after your studies finished as well, which was um, really, really useful and like made you be very introspective as well. Um, so that that was actually a really nice experience doing the the written application. I think um, then the interviews were, yeah, again a little stressful. It was happening. I bet I've heard, Hannah. I've heard. It doesn't it's very stressful. But also, you know, a great way to put your message across and let people know a little bit about you as well. Yeah, they for, for me, they all happened on Zoom because it was the first year of the pandemic. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe maybe that helps a little. I'm I'm not sure, but I think it I think it I think it might have. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, the the two rounds of interviews sort of happened and <laughs> then I found out uh probably about two weeks later that I that I got it and you're in. Mm. Yeah, it was it was a really great day. I um I put in my notice to the Navy not long after that and <laughs> guess what? I'm off. I'm going to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Exactly. Yeah. What did mum and dad think when you said uh, you know that scholarship that I applied for? Guess what? I got it and I'm going to Canada. Yeah. I mean they're sort of my parents are always incredibly proud of anything me and my brothers and sisters do and very, very supportive. I think they're a little sad that I'm so far away at the moment. Mm. Um, given, you know, when I left, we weren't entirely sure when, when we were all going to see each other again and um, borders were still a little tricky. So, um, I mean, things are looking a lot more positive now. I'm, I'm planning to see uh, some of them halfway through this year and then the rest of them all over Christmas. So, yeah, I think they're just very happy for me. And so, what's the plan? What's the plan? I think you said it's um, it's four years of study. Once all fingers crossed, you get through that successfully. Is it your plan then to potentially come back to Australia and work, live and work full time back in Australia? Uh, yeah, that's very much on the cards for me at the moment. The job I would really love is back with the Antarctic Division um, down in Hobart. They have a few scientists employed on staff um, and they provide all sorts of recommendations to the Australian government about how we deal and manage our territory down in Antarctica. Um, So that's very much what I'm aiming for at the moment. Postdoc work is something I might have to consider in between those two roles, but yeah, we'll see how that plays out when I finish up the PhD. It'd be remiss of me not to ask you about the weather events we're having in Australia at the moment. I don't know if you've seen the headlines, but we've had horrendous rain in both Queensland and New South Wales, resulting in a lot of flooding. Have you got any observations from afar about what's going on in in Australia? Yeah, definitely. I I have been following along. Um, I probably haven't seen quite the quantity of information that you're getting back home, but it's really devastating and sad to see these events play out. You know, there's there's going to be a lot of work getting Brisbane and Sydney back on their feet and all the other parts of New South Wales and Queensland that have been affected as well. From a climate change point of view, I think the sad thing is that these extreme events, you know, extreme rainfall events, 
are just going to be more and more common. I, I know there's been talk about the floods in Brisbane from 2011 and, and a comparison to what's happening now. Yeah, and I, the the sad thing is that these events, are there's going to be shorter spans of time between them and they'll probably become more and more severe uh, as climate change keeps progressing. How do you, as a scientist and a meteorologist, answer the sceptics and the critics that say climate change is a myth, it doesn't exist, it's all made up and there's nothing to see here? How do you answer that? I th- it's very difficult. I, I mean, there there is all sorts of evidence you can point to and, um, you know, papers you can give people. I, I think the true sceptics are, are probably never going to get convinced. I, I hope there's a middle ground of people who are, who are maybe a little sceptical but are also willing to listen to the evidence and be showing the proof and then will be able to change their mind. So, yeah, I, th- I think the extremists you know, as, as much as I will try to give them the right information, like I guess I'm probably probably not hopeful that they'll listen, but then I think there's a big middle ground of people who just need to be shown and communicated that information too clearly so that they can understand and, and hopefully change their mind about um, these things and, and how they work. Very well said. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Good luck with your studies, with your PhD, and all the best uh, in the years ahead. And we look forward to welcoming you back to Australia when the time is right. So thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Justin. It's been a pleasure.